Today on Sports Card Investor, an interview you're going to love. I bring on Chris from the House of Jordans podcast to talk Jordan card prices, to talk about the sports card market in general, to talk Luca, to talk business, and to talk a whole lot more. My name is Jeff Wilson. By day, I invest in tech companies. And at night, I invest in sports cards. Join me on my journey to profit from the hobby we all love. Hello, sports card investors, and welcome to another episode. I hope you are having a great weekend. I hope your Sunday is off to a great start, and I have got a special treat for you today. I have Chris from the House of Jordans podcast. This guy is a sharp sports card collector and investor, and we have a great conversation that I think you are really going to enjoy today. Uh, But first, have you voted for a local card shop in our Card Shop of the Year contest that Sports Card Investor is doing? Have you nominated a local card shop? This is almost your last chance to do it because we're about to end nominations. Go to sportscardinvestor.com and scroll down to find the article about the card shop competition to nominate a local card shop into our competition. We'd really appreciate you, you to do that. This gives us an opportunity to recognize card shops and card shop owners. A lot of them have to have their doors closed right now. So this is a really nice opportunity to recognize them and give them a little bit of a boost from the publicity that being named Sports Card Investors Card Shop of the Year could potentially bring to them. All right, let's get into this interview. So some of you may listen to the House of Jordans podcast and recently House and Jordans has also started a YouTube show. If you have not, it is really worth a listen. Chris and his crew do these very in-depth podcasts where they first and foremost, talk about Michael Jordan card collecting, which is never more relevant than right now with the with the Last Dance documentary going on. But they also talk about other aspects of the hobby and they theorize about the overall market. They talk about Luca cards often, et cetera. It's a really heady, smart, witty podcast. Again, it's called House of Jordans. It's worth checking out. And I'm really proud to have Chris as a guest of the show on today. We've got a great interview where we talk about Jordan, we talk about the documentary, we talk about the sports card market and our outlook on it, and so many other things. So without further ado, please welcome Chris from the House of Jordans podcast. Hey Chris, welcome to Sports Card Investor. Yeah, thank you. It is an honor to be here. And let me just say something, my friend. I've seen you grow by leaps and bounds. I saw your breaker culture interview. I saw your Dr. James Beckett interview, saw your Cardboard Chronicles interview. Now you are most likely the most foremost hobby content creator in the hobby. I just want to say congratulations on your success, my friend. Oh, I appreciate that, man. There's there's other good content creators as well, including yourself, by the way. So, um, but yes, it's been a it's been an amazing ride. It's been an, it's it's been a lot of fun. So I I uh, I'm I'm blessed to have uh, a lot of good people following the show, a lot of great viewers out there. But I really appreciate it. But let's talk about your show um, because House of Jordans. Uh, is a podcast and a YouTube show, which I started listening to pretty early on. And um, it's never more relevant than today. Like, I mean, can you believe how unbelievably relevant your, your, your podcast, your YouTube show, very much focused on Michael Jordan collecting? And actually, first of all, did you know about this documentary when you started the podcast? Did you know this was gonna happen? Well, there had always been rumors in the pipeline that there was this incredible treasure trove of footage about this season, but for one reason or another, it had never come out. Uh, But everybody kind of knew that it might happen one day. But the way it actually came out has been shocking on a number of levels. First of all, we never really had a release date, even when it was announced that ESPN and Netflix are partnering to do this thing. So we were all just kind of waiting around like, yeah, is it ever really gonna happen? And then we get this suspension of league play and all sports shut down and everyone's like well we know that this documentary is supposed to be coming pretty soon so is there any chance that they're going to move it up and try and fill this void with content and then all of a sudden like two weeks before it releases you know we all just get this last second notice oh guess what it's coming and it's coming very soon and it's going to be coming out over a period of five weeks so that put the hobby on like emergency alert 
And, you know, a lot of us tried to, you know, maybe anticipate something like this happening because when things like this happen, you know, kind of like what you talk about in your show, when Hall of Fame announcements happen, that creates a lot of interest in the hobby for cards. So this is kind of like that on steroids, but nobody really expected it to happen so quickly. So it was jarring on that level. And then it was also shocking because with live sports not being played, just all of a sudden everybody's just thinking about Michael Jordan. So it, it, this is such a perfect storm, uh, perhaps is the way to put it, for the Michael Jordan market that uh, unfortunately, I don't think anybody saw this coming or could have anticipated it, but it definitely had a lot of people scrambling uh, over the last few weeks and even today to kind of get those last few cards that they need before, you know, over the course of the documentary just goes insane. Yeah, if you haven't bought those last few Michael Jordan cards you need now, <laughs> those are a little expensive at this point in time. Um, it's It's been an amazing run. It really has. And, and you know, the card prices, I mean, we could t certainly talk more about card prices and I know we will, because I know you've got some cards to show during the episode, which are pretty impressive. Um, but, um, but let me ask, how long do you think it's going to last? Like, do you think that Jordan, like, have we now elevated Michael Jordan's prices to a new baseline and they'll only go up from here? Or is it that we're in a peak and then there's going to be maybe a little bit of another valley once we're past the documentary and the NBA starts again and, and maybe people forget a little bit more about Jordan? You put your finger on the key question that I think everybody is kind of has or should have in the back of their mind right now. And I think like preliminarily, I want to say it's going to be card specific cards that are normally widely available with a high amount of supply. I think we will see peaks and valleys. Maybe cards that are a little more elusive might not trail off as much. But again, this is, is it, this is an unprecedented thing in, in sports card collecting. So I, I won't even venture too much speculation on it. But what I will say is that there are going to be lessons that can be taken from this and perhaps applied to people who collect over the career of other players. Because we're sort of seeing over the span of a few months, the entire hobby life cycle of a player. So we get this like period of anticipation building up, going into the documentary, which is sort of analogous to the hype leading into a player's first few years, like Zion or Luca or something like that. Then you get like the crescendo where, you know, we're going to see these achievements play out. People are going to be celebrating his career. It's going to be like Mahomes winning the Super Bowl or, you know, going to be like Zion getting his first ring or Luca getting his first or whatever. And then we're going to see it taper off. And we're going to see the documentary end and the player and the career and, and all the news is going to eventually move on to other topics. And so then that's going to be one of the most interesting parts of this study is what happens afterwards. And so I think like collectors of, of you know, other all-time greats like LeBron, some of these other guys can, can maybe study this moment and see like over this, this little microcosm of the hobby life cycle of a player, what happens after the career ends eventually. And so we're going to see that kind of play out over like two to three months. So you know, from an empirical standpoint, I think it's a really interesting case study that we kind of get this little peek into into a, a, a player's hobby life cycle. That's fascinating. You know, I haven't thought about the fact that it, you, you're right, that we're kind of seeing almost like an accelerated career peak of Michael Jordan in a few week period here. And it's it's you're right. There's going to be a lot to learn from that. And, you know, obviously you and I, none of us can actually predict what the market's going to do and if there will be a valley or if this is a new baseline, I don't know. But one thing that I do know, and I'm sure you agree, well, I know you agree, is that Michael Jordan is a great long-term card to hold. And much like much like the, you know, the stock market, it's, an, it's impossible to determine the timing of individual peaks and valleys. But one thing that history has proven to us is that if you buy stocks and you hold on to them for many, many years, then those peaks and valleys don't really matter because the overall trajectory is that you as a whole are going to go up because the stock market over many, many, many years averaged together has gone up and up and up. And I suspect we're going to see the same for Michael Jordan cards. That's very well said. And I think when a lot of people get into collecting Michael Jordan, they do think about it that way. They think about like, okay, is this going to do like a Luca 5X over the course of a one season? You know, nobody's expecting that or nobody expected that to happen when they got into Jordans. They more expect we're collecting one of the all-time greats. We're collecting cards usually from like the 90s or the 80s, which is like a very unique era. And so we're not expecting like any sudden influxes of just, you know, demand for the cards. So, so this is a very outlier sort of event that we're seeing right now where we are seeing certain Jordan cards over the course of a week or a month do like a 5X or a 6X. 
And so, you know, the question, as you rightly put it, is, is this going to be like a blip? And then, you know, we go back to the normal trajectory that we were always on, or does it establish a new baseline? I, I think the, the, the cop-out answer, but I think it, it's, going to, it's going to be a little bit of both. You know, it's, it's just going to be card specific. So like we're seeing certain cards get attention that never got attention before. And I think it's because the new people who are coming and looking at Michael Jordan cards and getting interested in them, they bring with a new and a different approach to collecting. 90s collecting is very, you know, focused on inserts and parallels. But collectors in the modern era, they love base cards. You know, they love the 2012 LeBron prison base card. They love the 2018 Optic LeBron prison base card. They love the Zion and the Morant prison base cards. They just love this stuff. So they took the logic of their collecting in the modern era and they're applying it to the 90s. And now all of a sudden cards that, you know, traditional Jordan collectors didn't care too much for, like, I don't know, the 96 Chrome base card or the 93 Finest base card, or even the 97 Metal Universe base card. These cards have gone up five, six, eight times over the course of a few weeks to a month. So will those people stay um, in, in the market? Will they continue to collect Jordan? Will they flip? You know, will they tire of it? That remains to be seen. I, it's, it's just, it's very hard to predict because we've never seen anything like this before. It's, 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 un it's unreal. It's fascinating. It honestly is one of the things I love about sports cards in general. Like it's all, this is such an interesting study in economics, in human psychology, in how marketplaces work. Like I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a business guy and I've started, you know, 12 or so different businesses over the course of my lifetime. So I'm always kind of fascinated with how business works and how marketplaces work and and how you know economics affect people and how buyers think and how sellers think and, and how negotiation works and all that kind of stuff. And so seeing kind of all of those different elements play out within the sports card world in so many varied circumstances, like you just said, like we're constantly seeing new things that we've never encountered before. So one of the things that I just, I, it makes sports card investing so much more fun to me than other forms of investing you could do. Like I'd, I'd much rather put some money into sports cards and see all of this play out because it's such a fun kind of, almost intellectual educational experience you know that that you go through seeing all this stuff it is man and that uh, that's one of the very interesting things about your perspective is the business and entrepreneurial perspective that you bring to the table and you mentioned economics you know one of the great theories of economics is revealed preference and revealed preference is just simply the idea that marketplaces can tell us more about the values that people have than if we just issued survey data and asked people, how do you rank things? Or what do you prefer more? Because in the marketplace, you have to put your money where your mouth is. Yep. So data and like the data tracking that you do tells the story of the hobby in a really sincere way because it reveals how people allocate their, their money and it reveals their preferences and it orders sports car collecting and it teaches us something about the hobby in a way that if we just asked people what they liked, we couldn't get the same sort of information from them. No, you're absolutely right. And it's it, the fact that hits home because uh, one of my other companies that I, kind of my, the company that I run day to day is a company called 352 and we're an innovation and growth company. We do a lot of work with, uh, we do a lot of work with, with medium sized to large companies on helping them figure out their next big idea. What's their next product? What are they gonna launch into the marketplace? How are they going to validate an idea in the marketplace? And I mean, one thing that we find is that it's when you're interviewing people, when you're doing user interviews and you're trying to ask people, hey, do you like this product? Would you buy this product? You oftentimes aren't getting fully truthful information from people because people are biased and they'll tell you one thing, but then when it actually comes down to them pulling out a credit card and making a purchase, it's perhaps something different. And honestly, a lot of startups, I do a lot of startup mentorship here in Atlanta, and a lot of startups fall into that fallacy where they, you know, they they think they have a great idea because they've asked 10 or 20 of their friends who are all like, oh man, yeah, I'd buy that, I'd pay for that, you know, but like that's that doesn't actually mean anything until they pull out the credit card and actually make the purchase. And the behavior at that point in time is a lot different. At 352, one thing that we do to kind of try to get around that is we do a lot of observation. We do a lot of we do a lot of question asking and also observation of people in their natural state where we are not actually asking are you going to buy this or not, but we're observing people's behaviors and people's pains and we're trying to understand how like, you know, painful something is for somebody and 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 therefore because that often will dictate, you know, will they pay for a solution or not? Like, you know, it, it, it you know, are they experiencing enough 
discomfort or enough annoyance with something that they're having to do on a day-to-day basis where they would actually pay to um, you know to uh, buy something. And by the way, by the way, that's the same theory that I used when I built my Market Movers data tool because I personally had the experience of trying to understand the price movements of cards and I would have to go scrape, you know, eBay data and pull it down into spreadsheets and then create graphs by using Excel or Google Sheets. And I, I would do, I was doing all this complicated stuff to simply try to graph out and understand the price movements of cards. And it was such a manual, repetitive process to even get a price graph on one card took a long time. I had to go through every single eBay sale and get rid of all the ones that were like PSA 10 question mark and all of the ones that they said in the listing that it was a silver, but it was really just a base card. This tremendously tedious process to create one graph. And I'm like, good God, if I wanted to look at, let's say, you know, a thousand different players and compare them against each other, it's impossible. And so that's, it was that personal pain that actually motivated me to create my market movers tool. And I, I assumed that if I could solve that pain for me, because it was a very real pain, then I could solve that pain for other sports card investors and collectors. And so you learn, you know, that it's not actually people's people's intent, it's actually people's action and the pain they feel and all that kind of stuff. So looping back around to what you said, um, yes, looking at the data is really interesting and looking at the, you know, this Jordan explosion, and as you said, where money's going or or maybe where money's not going to go in the months ahead, we don't know. But following the data really tells kind of an in-depth story of how people perceive the marketplace. It tells a great story. And if I may, let me uh, share with you and your audience a couple of the stories that are unfolding in the Michael Jordan market right now. So here's a fun thought experiment to sort of as a hook to kick people, to, to hook people into this this experiment or this thought here. Suppose you had a thousand dollars and you had a time machine and you could go back to 1986 and here in front of you of, of the menu of ways to invest your $1,000, you can buy Microsoft stock at its IPO or you could buy 1986 FLIR wax boxes. Okay. Now the Microsoft performance of its stock taking into consideration stock splits and reinvestment of dividends, thousand dollars in 1986 is $2.2 million today. It's one of the all-time great stocks. It's a behemoth of a stock. It's incredible. But sports collectibles, especially with the explosion that they've had recently, has a very interesting, uh, as, a, as a comparable to that. So if you had put $1,000 into 1986 FLIR wax boxes, which at the time were $10, according to contemporaneous reporting, $10, you could have gotten 100 boxes. Now the current market value of 1986 FLIR boxes with the original 36 packs intact is probably around $85,000 per box. And of course they had to get sealed and authenticated by Steve Hart at BBC. That $1,000, had you put it into FLIR wax would be $8.5 million today. So Microsoft, 2.2 million today, 86 FLIR wax, 8.5 million today. Now I, I just wanna say there's caveats Stocks is very different. There's institutional protections and regulation over them. They're generally understood and accepted as like retirement level sort of investing strategies. And cards are something slightly different. They're, they're collectibles. They're, you, know, you would have to insure something like that. There's, there's not the same liquidity, even close. You couldn't unload all the 100 boxes at the same time. So like, it's not apples to apples exactly. But that's a, that kind of tells the story of how sports cars and collectibles have just become such an important part of, of our little subculture that we occupy as sports fans and, and enthusiasts. And my biggest takeaway from that is all of the people out there who feel bad that Scottie Pippen was the 122nd, you know, paid player in the NBA. Don't feel bad because Scottie Pippen had the opportunity to go buy his own basketball cards in 1986 and chose not to. And had he done that... None of this contract stuff would have mattered because he'd be the richest man in America. So, you know, don't feel bad for Scottie Pippen. Like you and me, he chose not to buy his own basketball cards or Michael Jordan's basketball cards. But that's pretty funny. I also have to kick myself because um, in uh, I, I started, that was, 1986 was the first year that I started collecting cards. Um, and in fact, I have um, up, in my, uh, up in my attic, I have a giant box of 1986 Topps baseball. I probably have a complete set of 
86 tops baseball three or four times over, you know, with just all these singles, right, that I have that are actually not even sorted as a set, just tons and tons of singles. Why I did not buy basketball in 1986, I don't know. I have tons of football, but it's just one of those things that you'll kind of look back at and be like, why didn't I do that? Like, why, you know, why, I don't know, you know, but that's, you know, uh, but yes, um, that's an absolutely amazing stat. And uh, wow, incredible, absolutely incredible. Well, don't kick yourself too hard, my friend, because in 1986, that was Fleer's first year making basketball cards after a long hiatus. Basketball itself was definitely in an infancy of sorts. In fact, people were very concerned about the direction of basketball coming out of the 70s. And then Magic and Larry sort of brought this star element to it. But then Michael Jordan took that torch and took it to another level. So like, there's a really interesting parallels between Michael Jordan as a collectible, as, as cards, the card industry, but and then the NBA. Because as Jordan ascended, as the NBA became this global brand, as it became such an important part of mainstream American culture, so too did sports cards. And the trajectories sort of map each other. So when you collect Michael Jordan cards, if you start at the beginning, which is the 84 star card, and then you get to 86 Fleer, and then you eventually get to the end, you know, which is the late 90s, and you've got Metal Universe and this proliferation of incredible brands and innovative manufacturing technology and art. You know, you, it, it maps very neatly the ascent of sports. And then I think like one of the explanations for why sports cards to this day continue to be so popular and so highly sought after is because sports can you know continue to grow in popularity and as a form of escapism and entertainment, not just here in America but but worldwide. Uh, yeah, I fully agree. And I'm, I mean, I am completely optimistic and bullish on the sports card market for years to come for that exact reason. And I know that not everyone agrees with me on that. And, you know, people think, oh, we're in a bubble and or we're back in another junk wax era. I, I don't, I don't agree with any of that. I think that, I think that the reason why people are being driven back into the hobby are very pure, true reasons that like, look, this is a lot of fun and it's very collectible. And the cards these days are so much more fun to hold and own. And the production is so much better and the scarcity and the grading and all of those things make it, make it a really, a really compelling thing. And I feel like interest is just going to continue to go up and up. And, and I don't feel like we're in a bubble because um, you know, it may not have been true with basketball back in the 80s, but when you look at baseball and, you know, the sets that were so overproduced and people are saying, well, gosh, today we're getting back into this overproduction. No, we are printing a small fraction of the cards today that we were printing in the late 80s and early 90s. So yes, print runs are going up year over year. And yes, there's more Prism basketball printed this year than there was last year. And there's more Prism last year than the year before. That is true. But if you add up every single Zion Prism card in existence, it is a absolute minute fraction compared to the cards that you could have found of Ken Griffey Jr. rookie cards in 1989 that were in existence, right? So I still feel like um, you know there's 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 a lot of positive things in the marketplace today. Um, and what's interesting is you know I think you point out some of the things with basketball back in 1986 where people weren't, including me, wasn't paying any attention to it, wasn't collecting, it wasn't buying the boxes, it wasn't an in thing. But you know, just as the market, you know, it, it, it's one of those old business adages that like as everyone's focus is over here, you know, the way to make money is kind of to focus over here a little bit, which I will honestly say at the moment has me thinking modern cards, like new couple, last couple of year players a little bit more than some of these players like Jordan in that era, only because we've seen this run-up. You know, we've seen this incredible run-up over the last month and it spilled, it spilled beyond just Jordan and the and the Bulls. And it spilled even it spilled into other classic basketball players from that era, like Malone and Stockton and Barkley and Akeem, all these other guys. But but it spilled now beyond them and it spilled into other sports where you're seeing guys like um, you know, uh, uh, Ken Griffey Jr., who I mentioned, you know, a minute ago, his card's going crazy. And, and so I'm kind of thinking actually at the moment, the play is, okay, let, let's, let's look at some of these modern guys who are, people are maybe not paying, you know, let's look at some of the rookies this year in basketball because people have forgotten about them. No one's talking about Tyler Hero or Kobe White or any of those guys at the moment. Uh, well, maybe Kobe White a little bit because he's still kind of stuck in people's minds. But a lot of those second year guys, you know, or not second year, the second tier guys like an RJ Barrett, some of those types of guys, um, they are forgotten about at the moment. And they are the guys who are not seeing 
their card prices go up while you know all the money and kind of attention is deflected elsewhere. Um, but um, but it's 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 been a really cool run. And of course, you know, I say all of that, but at the same time, owning Jordan, owning the Hall of Famers, those are guys who you are going to feel secure about holding in the long run. Where of course, you know, I just mentioned some of the guys like who are much more speculative. You know, your R.J. Barretts and your um, Kobe Whites and, you know, Tyler Heroes and those kind of guys. I mean, those kind of guys are, who knows if they're, you know, they're going to go anywhere. But um, but let's talk about some of those cards. Let's talk about some of those classic Jordan cards. I know you've got a few that are kind of a particular interest to collectors and investors. And there's so many that have gone up and benefited uh, this last uh, month. But you've got a few in particular that I know kind of really stand out. I do. I would love to talk about them. And let me just uh uh, throw one asterisk or append something to what you said to, to drive it home. Um, so 1986 Fleer in the PSA Pop Report has just shy of 250,000 cards graded. Uh, 2018 Prism has 80,000. So, you know, uh, not even close, not even comparable. And we also, you know, know that, that a lot of 2018 Prism has been graded because the rookies from that class absolutely exploded. But the same goes for 1986 Fleer. But 86 Fleer was Fleer's first, you know, step back into the hobby again. And, and they already, you know, their PSA pop is more than three times with the 2018 Prism is. So that just speaks to what you said. Now, all right, so here's, this, here's a little story I want to tell about Jordan cards. So we talked a little bit about how, you know, modern collectors have taken a, a sudden interest in Jordan cards. And one of the places where it's materialized most clearly is in the 1997-98 Metal Universe base card. Yeah. Uh, I want to give a hat tip to Arena Design who uh, they are a couple who were responsible for most of the artwork and the design of a lot of the great 90s cards. And they, of course, designed this card as well. Now, this card in particular has been graded by PSA 830 times. And I want to talk about the PSA 8 because it has such an interesting story to it. Two years ago, you could have gotten a PSA 8 of this card for 10 bucks. 10 bucks, all right? A month ago, $52. Okay, not the cheapest thing in the world, but $52. The current market value of this card in a PSA 8 is $415 right yep. now. And now. Now, it's one of the most iconic Jordan base cards, but to go up 700% in a month, to go up 4,000% over two years, that's just not something that we're very used to in the Michael Jordan market. We are used to seeing big gains, so over time. So, for example, Jambalaya is one of the great inserts. A PSA 9 has sold twice in the last five years on eBay. The last sale before the one that happened this week was 2015. It sold for about $2,000. This past week, it sold for $20,000. So you see the appreciation happen, but it's, it's over a longer arc. And Jambalaya is, is one of the most coveted Michael Jordan cards. So that's what's important about it. But going back to the Metal Universe base card for a second. So we see this return to interest in base cards, and especially PSA slabs. People love the PSA slabs, especially people coming from the modern perspective. But there's also another part to that story, and this is where it kind of dovetails into my collecting. Uh, so that card has two parallels. It has the PMG green, which has 10 copies, and it has the PMG red, which has 90 copies. Now the PMG green sold at open auction in February of 2019, for $350,000. The previous sale of that card on eBay was in 2007 for $5,200. <laughs> oh, that person's not feeling good about their day today, are they? <laughs> All apologies to that person uh, who's listening. But so, so th this is sort of the trajectory and the arc for those, those grails, those holy grails. Now, the PMG Green was never a card that realistically would be um, in consideration for me. But, but the PMG Green tells part of the story of why that Metal Universe base card kind of came onto the map and has become a go-to because it put a spotlight on it. But what I have acquired is the PMG Red, which is out of 90. Now, there's a lot of reasons to like the card. I'll, I'll give a little show of it here. This is my very humble PSA 5. Um, these are condition-sensitive cards. They are difficult to grade. Um, but I do have a PSA five here and it's the, the crown jewel of my still, it's still a beautiful card. I mean, even PSA five is still a beautiful card. The reflection on that, it's, it's a, that's yeah, a very nice looking card you just held up. It, well, I, that's what ultimately attracted me to it. You know, uh, as collectors, we often rationalize why we like things, you know, it's scarce. Um, that matters for sure. It comes from an important set. That's important too. But at the end of the day, you just, you have to like what it looks like. It has to speak to you on some, you know, visceral 
emotional, almost irrational level. There is an irrational component to all this, the, the passion that we bring to collecting. And, and there was definitely sure. an irrational passion for me when I acquired that card. And, you know, that, that, that's part of this hobby story too, is as collectors, we express ourselves through our collection. So I could sit here and tell somebody about myself for 20 minutes, maybe somebody at a show, somebody in the hobby, and I could try to explain, or I could just show them one card. And if I show them that card, it tells them everything they need to know about my history in the hobby, about what I like to do, about how I pursue the cards I pursue, about what my goals and ambitions are. So that's a really interesting expressive part about card collecting is you kind of tell people a lot about yourself and connect with people and build community with people just by showing them a card. So that's a nice little sneak peek into a segment of the Jordan market and kind of where I got involved and where I fit in. Now I got that card two years ago and it was a very weird deal. I'd been negotiating with somebody back and forth. We agreed on a price and he said, okay, I'm going to fly in and you bring cash. You meet me at a car dealership and we'll do the deal. So I said, well, this is weird, but uh, you know, this guy is respected. He's reputable. I don't know why we're meeting at a car dealership, but okay, we can do this. So I meet him at the dealership. When I show up to the dealership, uh, it's myself and my girlfriend, Christina, who's a co-host of the house of Jordans with me. We both go and he's out test driving a car when we show up. So I said, like, okay, we'll wait for him to get back from his test drive. We do the deal. I look at the card. Everything looks good. I have it checked out by my experts. I send some, them pictures of it. They say everything looks good. I give him the cash and he goes and buys a car. And he says, I'm going to start an Uber business uh, on the side here as a driver. And, uh, you know, this is what I'm using the proceeds for. Uh, now, you know, the trade-off is interesting, right? Because the car uh, surely has done great wonders for him as a, as a, as a business generating opportunity for him. So congrats to him and, and I'm happy for him. But I consider it a win-win because I have a crown jewel of my PC right here and it hasn't done too bad on the market over the last two years. Either. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> no kidding. Think how many less Uber rides he would have had to, uh, you know, ha taken people on if he had just held the card until this month and had sold it this month, you know, but of course, who knows, right? You never... You never know. You never know what's going to happen. And, and and I'm sure in his situation, he's like, I'm sure he had made some good money on it. And he's like, hey, I'm going to get out of this now. And I'm going to, you know, roll this forward into my next thing. And for him, his next thing apparently wasn't sports cards. It was buying a car so he could Uber people around. So, hey, good for him. Yeah, good for him. Happy for him to have done that. Happy for myself to have acquired a, a, just the, the crown jewel in my PC. For sure. So, you know, good for you as well, without a doubt. Appreciate that, my friend. Yeah, man. So uh, there's another part to my PC too that I'd love to share with you and your audience. Please. Uh, here's some other of the, so, so this is what's interesting about collecting Jordan and then collecting modern cards is you look for the parallels. You try and look and see what can you learn from Jordan that you can apply to modern and what can you learn from modern that you can apply to Jordan. And one thing about the Jordan market that I've learned is that uh, scarcity can do very well over the long term. And so I've always kind of looked for like the grail cards, so to speak. And here's one of them. This is the Luca National Treasures RPA at a 99. It's, it's a BGS 9. Uh, we went to a hobby shop like the weekend that National Treasures was released. And they were having a trade night there. The shop's called the Bullpen in Los Angeles. And somebody had pulled one of these out of a box. And so we happened to find him. And we said, hey, you know, would you like to sell us this car potentially? And we worked out a trade and cash deal for $8,500 for the card. Now, unlike Jordan, these cards have gone absolutely nuts over the past season, yeah. right? And that's just something that you'll never see happen with Jordan, uh, except for in moments like this, because the, the, the analog is that when you're collecting a guy like Luca, you get to live with him every night of the NBA season. You get to watch games and you get to root for him. You feel the pain when they lose. You feel the joy and the, the, the exhilaration when they win. You get the hope and the optimism of going into the playoffs and perhaps doing the unthinkable and winning a title one day. So that, that's like oh, a listen, real- Alan, Come on now, let's not get ahead of ourselves. I know you're a Dallas guy, right? You're, you're, from, you're from there, right? You're a Dallas guy, is that right? I'm not from there, but I am a big, uh, big, big fan of, of Luca, and therefore. Yeah, I see you posting your. I see you posting photos from Mavs games. So I well, let's not get ahead of ourselves about a championship here. But you know, it's. But yes, no, I hear you. I completely get what you're saying, and honestly, I mean that's why I I love investing in the you know modern guys. I love investing in the second year players who I think are going to have a breakout year. The third year players who I think are going to have a breakout year. Because you get that you get that excitement, and certainly it's more risky, 
and you know investing in your Jordans and your first car that you just showed is an all-time classic car that I would feel very, very safe parking a lot of money in. The second car that you just showed, I love Luca. I think he's got an incredible game. I know you're big on all of his statistics. I've seen your you know tweets before about his player efficiency versus other players, all this stuff. So I know he's an incredible guy from that perspective. But of course, you know, of course, we don't we don't know. We don't quite know what's good. You know, he may not win a championship. He may he may you know he may be uh, you know. I mean, there's other guys like James Harden or Russell Westbrook who who have put up incredible, absolutely ridiculously mind-boggling numbers for years. But they don't really get the love from, you know, card prices, you know, for whatever reason, right? So hopefully Luca doesn't go that route. Hopefully he goes the more favored route, but we don't know for sure. Um, and so... Um, What's well, a good point, but, man. It's, it's a very good point. And, and so that's why there's other options in the Luca market too, like you have the prison base. It's because of the risk associated with collecting someone like Luca, which as you rightly point out, is very high. And some of my, you know, smart hobby friends, people smarter than me, have told me, look, Luca's prices are really strong right now. You sure you want to stay in this? But we're in it to collect him for his career. But there's yeah. other ways that you can collect or speculate on a prospect like Luca that doesn't involve, you know, going all all in on like an RPA. It's, it's something like this. So I bet using the market movers tool, you could track the Luca Prism PSA 10 base card. And you would see that over the course of this season, preseason, the values were about 70 bucks. Right now, they're flirting with 500. So the return on investment over the same period of an RPA, which has gone from in like a raw condition slash nine grade from about 8,000 to maybe 40 to 45,000 versus one of these, which has gone from 70 bucks to about 500, the Prism base PSA 10 has actually outperformed on an ROI perspective, the RPA. Now, it's a little different because, you know, you'd have to deal with a lot of quantity of the base card to get the same absolute dollar return that you get on an RPA. But it's from the return perspective, from somebody who maybe likes Luca but doesn't want to get too heavily involved, the Prism-based PSA 10 card is like a great sort of way to – it's like Luca currency. You know, when, when we want to understand the Luca market, that's one card we can look at and kind of get an idea of where it's going. I totally agree. And I like, you know, a lot of – it's interesting because I tell a lot of newer sports card investors, hey, just go for the popular stuff. Go for your Prism Base, go for your Prism Silver, go for your Optic, go for your Optic Hollow. And you'll hear some of the more kind of, um, you know, maybe classic investors who have been doing this for a very long time and guys who are, you know, have collections for many, many years. And they'll say, that's horrible advice. You always want to go for the most rare, most unique, most low, you know, serial numbered, low pop card you can find. And I understand the thinking. <clears throat> I understand the thinking behind that because there, historically, and although it's interesting, it's not true with your Luca example, but historically, buying into the more expensive, more rare card, you see greater appreciation with a more rare card than you do with a more common card. They start to kind of separate themselves. And so historically, that was the right way of thinking. But what's interesting now is with all of the people coming to the marketplace, is that line of thinking actually the valid line of thinking anymore? And the example you just gave of Luca is a good one, where actually the base is appreciated more than the National Treasures RPA because it's more in the reach of people. And it's still, it's still rare enough where the demand is currently exceeding the supply. It's not like, again, it's not like there's a million of those things printed. Um, so even though it's a very common card by 2018 standards, it's actually perhaps a pretty rare card by 2020 or 2021 standards or 2022 or 2023 standards. So, um, you know, I, I, it's, and of course, what I like about it being a data guy, and as you mentioned, having my market movers data tool, is I like looking at cards like that because you can much more accurately track the price. You can much more accurately create a trend line. You can truly understand what the market's doing. The more transactions you have of a particular card, the less a weird outlier sale is going to matter or a seller that you know had a bad reputation and therefore the price went down or they're in a weird country or all of those things that can affect the sales price or their pictures were bad or, you know, they didn't have enough feedback. All that stuff can throw off the sales price of a card. Um, if you're, if it's a card that's only sold 
once a month or a couple times a month, then those things have a big effect. If it's a card that's sold several times a day, then all that stuff evens out and you get a very, very pure, very, very true trend line. So that's why I like looking at like a Luca base to really understand the trajectory of, of what he's doing as a player and how the marketplace is responding to him. And then of course you can take the pricing intelligence of what you see in a Luca base card, and then you can apply that up to maybe the more rare cards to understand, well, okay, if the bases move from here to here over the last 60 days, then you might be able to expect the national treasuries to have a similar type of gain from a percentage standpoint. That is a tremendous, tremendous point. Very well said. Uh, and I want to just go back on something that you that you mentioned briefly, which is like this this kind of debate in the hobby that rages on between like rarity versus you know iconic common cards. And it's important because you know we understand the fundamentals of supply and demand. If there's just too much supply and not enough demand, then a card could be as iconic as ever. But you know there's just not a, there's too many copies and not enough buyers of it. But on the other hand, if a card is really rare, but but nobody knows about it and it's not iconic and, and nobody's really seeking it out, then you get the opposite problem where it's very difficult to obtain, but nobody's trying to obtain it. So you actually run into a, a different configuration of the supply and demand problem. But here's my here's my workaround. Um, and who knows, we'll see if time will tell if it pays off. But you know, you've got a card like this, which the Luca Prism based BSA 10 it has a population in excess of 9,000, which is a lot, but we also know that there's a lot of participants in the market. We also know that there's big institutional scale buyers who are sitting on hundreds, maybe thousands of copies of it. So that really impacts the supply. But I like to look at the base cards as like promotional material for the more rare parallels. And so here's a Luca Gold Prism uh, out of 10 uh, BGS 9.5. So that's kind of a way to hedge, right? Is to say, well, I, I get some rarity here. Of course, people can look at that card and say, well, that's nice, but it's just a different shade of the prism base card. So, you know, congratulations, but you just have something that has a serial number and a different shade on it. But on the other hand, there's, there's a lot of collector interest and desire and, you know, in, in certain categories of cards, especially like when you kind of look at the higher end ones, people really do compete and they really want to put together collections that, that speak to the history of the hobby. And like gold prism is one of the great lineages of the hobby. So, you know, maybe one way to enter in at that level is to pick the cards that have very iconic common base variants of them and then focus on the more rare parallels of them, the, the serial number ones. It doesn't have to be the gold out of 10. It could be the jersey color blue out of 199 or what have you. But so the, the sports car market and the way Panini has constructed it kind of lets people play their strategies in the ways that they prefer. And there's lots of different ways to approach this game. Yeah. That's one of the really fun things about modern sports cards. I, and that's one of the things I've enjoyed a lot more about it than when I used to collect in the 80s and the early 90s when there really, you know, none of that really existed. Indeed. Yeah. Very, very cool. Well, so, you know, we've talked all this time about Jordan and all of these cards, but we really haven't talked about the actual uh, documentary very much. We've, you know, we've seen the first two episodes. The third episode is actually coming out tonight uh, when this will air. Um, and so what are your, what are your impressions so far and, and what do you expect to see, you know, potentially tonight or in the weeks ahead? Well, one of the lines that resonated with me was Michael Jordan said, never mention the name Michael Jordan without the name Scottie Pippen. And especially like uh, I listened to an interview that Steve Kerr did with Zach Lowe this week and Kerr was emphasizing like, and Zach Lowe, they were both emphasizing how important it was for Jordan to say that because he was such a player who was just focused on, you know, I'm going to carry my weight. I'm going to make sure if people are with me. And if not, I'm going to drag them along. We're going to get this thing done. So for Jordan to like really pay that respect to Pippen like that, like I think Pippen's that, that aspect of Pippen's story was told in a really like enlightening and admirable way. And it was, it was very, you know, humble, I think of Jordan to, to, you know, give those accolades to Pippen. But then there's the other side, the Pippen story too, uh, where, you know, Jordan says, and I think kind of rightly, that Pippen putting off his, his surgery uh, over the summer so then he could miss the first few months of the year to sort of engage in this battle because rightly so, uh, in Pippen's perspective, he was being treated unfairly. You know, he had a very cheap contract that had been signed before all these distribution rights and media rights deals had been signed. So he was getting the raw end of the deal on that, and they probably should have taken care of him. But still, it was it, it, even the fan in me, you know, 20 years later looks back and I say, Man, I would be so frustrated. The Bulls going for that sixth title, and and here's Pippen, you know, putting off his surgery and missing a couple of months. So, like, the story of Pippen was very interestingly told. I thought. I don't know what you thought about that. 
No, I agree. That was, and I really, that, that line of Jordan really did resonate with me because he's always been seen as the guy. Um, and so for him to credit Pippen to that degree, I thought was really, really uh, kind of a neat thing to see. But yeah, you're right. It's a, uh, I liked the second episode. Honestly, I liked the second episode better than the first because the second you started to get into a little bit more depth, you started getting into a little more controversy. You started getting into a little more of like kind of looking at this from multiple sides and multiple angles. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to be interesting because now, of course, we're going to, in the episode tonight, we're going to introduce Dennis Rodman into the mix. So he hasn't been part of the mix really so far of this story. Um, and it's, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how it unfolds. It is. And, you know, episode one kind of talks about how the Bulls, they went to Paris. They were this international phenomenon. People likened them to the Beatles. Um, you know, they were just these unreal celebrities. And there were so many characters and so many uh, subplots to the overarching plot of seeking that title. Phil Jackson is a hell of a character. Dennis Rodman is a hell of a character. You know, so it's not, you know, sports, there's always sports and sports themselves tell an important story and give important life lessons to us. But, but there's these other personality arcs and dimensions to that team and that season that, you know, I think it's why people who have seen all 10 are just absolutely raving about this as like one of ESPN's very best documentary produced series right up there with the OJ series. So I'm very excited to, to learn a little bit more about Dennis and, and hopefully, you know, hear more about Scotty's story. And, uh, but at the end of the day, I, I do want to, ultimately get back to celebrating Jordan, uh, of course, who's my all-time favorite player. So how did you get into Jordan? Obviously, you you celebrate him enough where you've built an entire podcast where all you talk about is is Michael Jordan cards. I mean, you talk about a kind of a niche-specific thing. So how did you build this desire to collect Jordan and, and really have that type of focus? Yeah, no, it's uh, real simple. It's just in the 90s, I collected cards and I'm from the Chicagoland area originally, born and raised in that area. So, you know, when you're from Chicago, you don't really have a choice. You are a Chicago sports fan. You like the Bulls, you like the Bears, you like the Blackhawks. And then I guess you get to choose if you like the Cubs or the White Sox. So Bull, I was born into a Bulls fandom. But as a kid, I actually really liked the Rockets. I really liked Akeem Olajuwon. He was my favorite player. Uh, collected cards as a kid. Nothing crazy, just, you know, a kid getting a box, you know, on Christmas or something like that was kind of my story. Went away from the hobby. When I came back in 2016, I had a really important decision to make. Do I want to collect Hakeem? Do I want to collect, you know, modern? What do I want to do? And the first card that really caught my eye and kind of spoke to me on that irrational, you know, animal brain level was the 93-94 Scoring Kings Michael Jordan insert. It was one that was always too expensive for me to have as a kid. I remember being in the local car shop just looking at it behind the dealer uh, glass in the display case and just never being able to have it and always wanting it. So that was actually the first card I picked up. And I said, you know, Michael Jordan, here is, in my humble opinion, open to disagreement, uh, the greatest player of all time. And that's why at the end of the day now as an adult, you know, there's certain value systems that I have. That's who I want to collect. I want to collect the best of all time. That's the person that I want to learn about. That's whose cards I want to acquire. That's what I want to emulate is sort of being the best at something. It's like when Barack Obama gave Michael Jordan the Presidential Medal of Honor, he said, you know, maybe the highest compliment that you can give to somebody is you can tell them you are the Michael Jordan of X. You are the Michael Jordan of surgery. Jeff, you are the Michael Jordan of hobby content creation. These are like the highest compliments that one can be given. And Michael Jordan has become a metaphor and culture for that. So I kind of thought about that and I said, you know, deliberately, that's kind of something I, I want to focus on is, is Jordan. But it also just kind of goes back to childhood, sports fandom, bowls, kind of all wraps up nicely. That's really cool. That's a cool story. So <clears throat> you've had all this interest in Jordan. You've been collecting him all these years. And then what gave you the inspiration to actually start the podcast? Uh, because I like to talk. Okay. <laughs> and and we, we like to talk about cards and man, you know, cards is such a invigorating subject. It's, it brings so much passion. It's so interesting because we have this robust data set um, that exists through eBay. So like we can actually tell stories about things you, through empirical methodologies like studying price trajectories, which is like very rare. And then in, in terms of like other sort of passion areas, there's not many things you can really do that with. So that's fun to talk about. Um, and then also, like, nobody has ever really, like, rigorously, empirically studied this area. You know, I don't know of very many e economists who have sort of studied the, the card market. 
I don't know, you know, at that time there weren't very many podcasts. So it was like, maybe we can actually intellectually contribute something here and make observations that are worth thinking about and that people can think about and we can start discussions and have dialogues about stuff like that. Um, so that was kind of the inspiration behind starting it. But, but also it was just the three of us just kind of like to get together and, and talk about cards for hours. Very cool. Well, I'm sure a lot of my listeners have checked out the House of Jordans podcast, but I'm sure there's a lot that haven't. And you guys should go check it out. Check out the House of Jordans podcast. Uh, both, I think you're on all the major podcast platforms and then you're also on YouTube. So you could search for House of Jordans and uh, find any of this. And there's no time more relevant than right now with, you know, with all of this happening with uh, Jordan and the documentary. I'm sure it's going to be a great listen for many, many weeks to come. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate that. It's been a lot of fun having you on the show, Chris. I feel like we covered a lot of really interesting ground here. I'm sure everybody enjoyed it. And uh, maybe once we get basketball going again and we can actually start to see Lucas, how he's going to potentially do in the playoffs this year, uh, maybe, maybe we can get together for another show. That'd be fantastic. I appreciate it, man. Awesome, Chris. Been a pleasure to have you on. See you soon. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Chris from the House of Jordans podcast. Isn't he a smart, awesome guy to talk to? Check out his podcast, House of Jordans. And also, please go to my website, sportscardinvestor.com, and remember to nominate a local card shop on my Card Shop of the Year contest. And while you're there, check out my membership program because I would love for you to join my membership program so you can get access to my Market Movers data tool, which we talked about, and so many other great things that are part of my membership program, such as my Card Pick of the Week and my trending card reports where you can see firsthand how Michael Jordan cards are trending along with Scottie Pippen and so many other players, over 4,000 cards that I am tracking as part of my data and my reports. So please check that out. Go to sportscardinvestor.com and click on the membership tab in the main menu bar. And if you have not yet, please give my podcast or my YouTube show a subscribe. Click the subscribe button, click the little bell icon so you are the first to know when new episodes are released. And then I will see you back in a few days for my next one. Thank you, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Enjoy the Last Dance documentary. See you again soon.